Hey guys, Liat here. I wanted to let you guys know a little something cool that we just got in our shop. Are you studying for the BCBA exam or you know someone else has put their life on hold for the exam? And you just wanna get them a little something to show you're excited, proud of them, and celebrate the end of a long study journey? Well, in our shop, you could get the BCBA box, which is filled with all the essentials you need when you pass the test. Go to www.studynotesaba.com. Study Notes ABA. ABA in a little X-rated way. It's behavior, bitches. Hey, guys, it's Liat. And Casey. And we are here today with episode 87. Casey, what do you have for us today to rhyme with 87? Probably a repeat of another rhyme, but just uh, specific to this episode. A cult is no heaven. Whether they get worse every not. time. We just we just are trying to rhyme anything, guys. The further we get along, the better our content gets, but the worse our rhymes get. So just please be aware of that. But I like that you try, Case. Thanks. All right, guys. Today, before we get started, we have to start off with our view of the day to make us feel great about ourselves and pair ourselves with some reinforcement. Casey, what review of the day do you have today? I also feel like I like forget ones that we've done and I'm repeating, so I'm really trying hard not to. Um, but if I do repeat, whatever, right? YOLO. All right. So this comes in from LJ Joan. Listen to this podcast. Hands down the best thing to listen to while driving in between clients. Can't stop the motivation I get from hearing Liat and Casey talk all things ABA. Keep inspiring and being yourselves because that's what everyone loves. That's a good reminder. Yeah, that is the nice. world I don't think you read that. You. The world can change you. And like, it's hard when you're like, you know, I don't know, running a company and dealing with students and, you know, they're, you know, passing the test is such a big thing for them. And it's hard when they don't. And it just being true and being real, I think, is something that we just always need to stay true to. That's true. And this is going to generalize to today's topic of cults because you've got to stay true to you because these are some crazy shit we're going to talk about today. And before we get started, I want you guys to know, I am, this is probably the episode that in the last 25 episodes, I've been the most excited about. Because I know I was really excited when we had the hostage negotiator. And then I we had Daniela. Oh, oh, Daniela. I was really excited about how we had her from the um, Children of God cult. And today we have a guest who is a cult expert. And when I reached out to this person, I kind of just like cold reached out to them. And I was like, maybe he'll write back. Maybe he won't because this would be my dream to pick someone's brain like this. Um, if anyone knows, I'm obsessed with cults. I think a lot of people in the field of behavior analysis are also very fascinated because it is some crazy behavioral shit going on. And so our guest today, Casey, can you tell everyone mm -hmm. who they are? Yes. Yeah, so our guest today is Rick Allen Ross. Um, he is the author of the book, Cult Inside Out, How People Get In and Can Get Out. He is a cult intervention specialist and has been judicially qualified as an expert witness in court proceedings within 11 states, including U.S. federal court. He has lectured at more than 30 universities and colleges, including the University of Chicago, Dickinson College, Carnegie Mellon, Baylor, and the University of Pennsylvania. Ross also appeared on many top 
popular TV programs such as Dateline, The Today Show, Good Morning America, NBC Evening News, CNN World News, MSNBC, Oprah, and Liat's absolute favorite, Dr. Phil. So Ross has appeared in more than 20 documentaries. This guy is busy. He worked for Miramax Disney as a technical advisor on the Jane campaign film Holy Smoke and was a professional consultant for Ubisoft. Ubisoft? I don't know how. He can tell us about that. On its video game Far Cry 5. Also, he's been under the protection of federal law enforcement more than once for threats on his life by cult groups. This shit is crazy. Rick, welcome to the show. Hi, Casey. Hi. How are you? I am fine. Awesome. Thank you for being here today and making Liat smile so big. I can't stop smiling. I mean, this is actually my dream podcast. In fact, I probably can make a whole podcast just on my fascination with cults. So this is really, really, really cool. Thank you for coming. Before we get into today's show, I want to tell you guys some of the behavioral principles that we will likely cover in this show. There might be some other ones, but these are just some that will definitely come up. We have MOs, pairing, behavior momentum, reinforcement, punishment, assessment, intervention, and mediation with families. All right, getting started. Cults, I think they're super interesting, but Rick, can you tell us how did you become so interested in cults and to where you are that you have been, I mean, all those names are cool to me, but being on Dr. Phil is like, <laughs> I love Dr. Phil. So here we go. How did you get into cults? Well, Liat, it started because my grandmother uh, was confronted by a group. She lived in a, in a Jewish nursing home in the 80s. And around 1982, this group infiltrated the paid professional staff covertly of the nursing home where she lived in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, when I visited with her to take her to lunch, she told me about this uh, very emotional experience that she had uh, being confronted by this recruiter. And I found out what had happened and, and I worked with the director of the nursing home and they ended up fi firing five people from the paid staff of the nursing home, including the nurse's aide that accosted my grandmother. And uh, after that, I was uh, asked to be on committees for Jewish Federation, uh, for my denomination of Judaism, which is the Union for Reform Judaism. And I found myself as an anti-cult activist, community organizer. I then was offered a job with Jewish Family and Children's Service in Phoenix and the Bureau of Jewish Education, and it just took off from there. And back in the 80s, I was doing intervention intervention work with our staff psychologist, uh, Victor Nemius, if he's out there listening, hey, Victor. So anyway, we did these interventions and uh, we would have families come to the office, they'd bring a loved one, they'd say they're in some kind of group or influenced by a leader, and we would talk with them. And what we did not know is that what we were doing was deprogramming. And later I would realize that's what they called what we were doing. And uh, so from there, I started doing more and more intervention work, uh, started doing it privately and started traveling. And I've done over 500 interventions across the US, Canada, uh, and around the world, Europe, Australia, the Middle East, I've been everywhere. That's amazing. All right, now, can you operationally define a cult for anyone listening? 
Because I think we also use the word lightly in a lot of things like, oh, I'm in this cult called Soul Cycle, or, you know, so <laughs> what is a cult? Well, I think there's a very narrow definition for what I would call a destructive cult. So here's what I would say is the nucleus for a definition. Number one, and this is the single most important factor, is you have an absolute totalitarian leader who has no meaningful accountability, who controls the group, and who becomes an object of worship. The group is personality-driven and defined by this living leader. And then second, that leader uses coercive persuasion, thought reform, and influence techniques to gain undue influence uh, systematically over the people in the group. And then third, if it's a destructive group and it's not a benign cult, which I think you could have a benign cult, uh, the group leader does harm to his or her followers. And that varies by degree from group to group. So you have the most extreme group, which would be like children of God, where children are being raped at the age of four and women are being turned out as prostitutes, calling themselves ho hookers for Christ, as they were called in children of God. Or you can have a group like the Waco Davidians that become violent or Amshin Rikyo that gas the Tokyo subway system. Or you can have a group that's not that bad. They're bad, but they're not that bad. And what they do is they just take your money, get you to do free labor to make money off of you, uh, and basically uh, hurt you psychologically, emotionally, and probably damage your relationships through social isolation but they may not be violent, criminal, or as extreme as other groups that I mentioned. So for anyone listening, how prevalent are cults? I think a lot of people are like, oh, that would never happen to me. That is just wild. That's just a Dr. Phil episode. They found the one person in the world who was in a cult. Well, that's sadly not true. Uh, what is true is that in the 80s, there was a group that would be on the basis of complaints, identified 5,000 uh, cult groups in the United States alone. That same group is now up to 10,000. So we're talking about a growth industry. We're talking about uh, cult leaders who are very rich uh, often, who exploit their members for, for money, for free labor, for sexual favors, whatever. And they are a burgeoning business. And with the advent of the internet, social media platforms, it's become even more ubiquitous. So anyone with an electronic device can be reached by a group if you're online. If you're online, you can be recruited and many groups now recruit almost exclusively online. And many of the old cults that I remember from the old days, you know, are still around, still doing very well, but they've added uh, social media and the internet to their recruitment portfolio. So I think people, I mean, I think a lot of the idea with cults is I think people are imagining they're extremely religious or, you know, like they're doing this because they believe in it so much they're actually businesses, a lot of them. Is that right? Yeah. And, and by the way, let's just disabuse ourselves of a few notions. Number one, not all cults are religious. For example, Nexium, uh, which has gotten a lot of news lately, and I dealt with them quite, quite heavily, 
they they were a seminar selling company. They weren't even a, a religious organization at all. And they were not even a nonprofit. They were a for-profit, the, the actual main company, Nexium. So a cult can be uh, any number of incarnations. It could be a multi-level marketing scheme. It could be an exercise group. It could be yoga. It could be meditation. It could be UFO flying saucers like Heaven's Gate, or it can be religious. Now in the US, with all the protections that we have through the First Amendment, it makes sense financially to incorporate, become a 501c3 religious nonprofit, receive tax exemption and protection by the First Amendment. So there are cults that actually leave countries like China, um, Europe, and they come to the US because they know the money's here and they can get special tax exempt status and protection. So cults come in all incarnations, and anybody from any socio socioeconomic level, any educational level, could be tricked and trapped by a cult group. I have done interventions with five medical doctors and a clinical psychologist, all of whom were as they say, brainwashed and manipulated by a cult. One of the doctors was an orthopedic surgeon. Another was an anesthesiologist. These were very sophisticated, highly educated people who were tricked and then trapped in a cult group. So even a, even a psychologist who probably has studied some different behavioral or you know psychological ways of doing, I mean, that is really interesting. So what do you, so if it could be anyone, right? I mean, I think a lot of people might be like, oh, is it people who aren't educated, whatever it is, but is there some criteria that you would say, like in behavior analysis, I'm sure you have a different word for it, but in behavior analysis, we'll talk about like what someone's MO, like why would they go get into drugs or was there like, you know, MO was they're trying to escape abuse or whatever it is. What is something that, or is there something that is a common theme across people who do join a cult? Yeah, there's a recurring, uh, I'd say, narrative, which is uh, this particular person was going through a difficult time in their life. Uh, someone close to them died. They're in a divorce. They're financially going through a rough patch. Uh, school isn't working out, and they're on the verge of flunking out or dropping out. Things are not going well, they're not happy, and at that pivotal point, they're approached by someone that is very likely a friend, a coworker, a, a relative, uh, could be a romantic interest, who then says to them, hey, I have some answers for you. I have a group that's really great. Uh, we're going to get together and play volleyball. Hey, we've got a hayride. Uh, why don't you come to our group? You might hook up with somebody blah, 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 and the person is trusting, the person who's pitching uh, for the group is convincing because they themselves are convinced. And so a combination of where that person is at at that time in a vulnerable state and the fact that somebody appealing, uh, attractive, or someone that they just trust who they know approaches them at that point, that juncture. So you could say, it's their bad luck that at the time in their life that they're at a low, 
somebody comes and hits them up from a cult group. So this is not just rant. Like these people who are in cults are probably going to do this too specific targets. If, if you're someone going through a difficult time and then you look at someone and you're like, oh, wow, they're actually really successful. They're so happy. They have their shit together. And is that how it typically happens? Uh, yeah. And, and another way it happens is you're, you're going through a rough time in your life and you're online and you're doing, uh, you know, searches for information about this or that. And you collide with a YouTube channel a social media platform it could be a Facebook page, somebody who's on Twitter, and you you're intrigued. You're intrigued by what you see, and you dig deeper, and you get involved. And I know of people that are completely uh, consumed by a group online before they ever even meet anybody physically. And I've done interventions to get people out of groups that are basically strictly online. And by the way, with PayPal, you can actually give your cult leader plenty of money and run up your Amex card online, giving buying whatever they're selling. Uh, I, I work with one young man who was a trust baby. He was in an Ivy League school in his early 20s. Uh, and he was recruited online, got into a group and gave 25000 before his mother found out in the first 30 days. And then I came in and did an intervention, and it was a group that was uh, online. He never met the leader. He would talk with her on Skype, and they would, and he would listen to her her podcast. He would listen to her, uh, you know, on YouTube and so on. And he became very in 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 you know just totally immersed in this group, and it was all online. Wow. I mean, this is just, all right. And I have a quick with... question. Yeah, go case. Uh, I know that this is your, your jam, but what... you're allowed, you're, I'll let you talk. It's okay. Case. <laughs> um, what does an intervention look like? like well, I, I described this in detail in my book and basically it's a three or four day experience. Mm -hmm. So the family first, uh, they plan it out. They figure out very, very much like a drug or alcohol intervention. Uh, it's a surprise. It's staged. It's it's uh, somewhat rehearsed in the sense that the family and I get together. We talk about what could happen, what likely will happen. And uh, the family says, OK, these are the people that we feel are the most persuasive, that have the most emotional weight with this person that's involved in the cult. Mm -hmm. It's typically the mom, the dad. Uh, siblings, a mentor, grandma, and you pull the group together and you have your team. And then we we meet with the person the first day by surprise. And then typically they're not exactly thrilled. You know, they're saying to the family, hey, you didn't tell me about this mm -hmm. and I don't appreciate it. But the family is persuasive and usually successful in getting them to agree to taking a break from the group for like three or four days and meeting in consecutive days, eight hours a day for three or four days. And we talk about, I would say, four basic categories of discussion. One, how do you define a destructive cult? Two, what are the thought reform and influence techniques used by destructive cults? How do they work? Number three, 
what about this particular group that you're involved in do you not know that you should know to be more informed? Uh, is there something they're hiding from you? What is it? And then number four, why is your family staging this intervention? Uh, why are they concerned? What are they worried about? And you go around the room and everybody says, hey, this is what you said or did that concerned me. And then there's a dialogue about that. So that's what takes place over a period of three or four days. And seven out of 10 of the people that I work with will decide to leave the group at the end of that period. About uh, you know three, three out of 10 will very likely leave in the first day or two and the intervention will be unsuccessful. So we were speaking with a, a guest we had on a couple episodes back, Rick, and um, you know, she was talking about cults really being everywhere. She saw herself go from a cult of being in the children of God to being in the military. She felt like that was almost culty in a way as well. She saw a lot of similarities. And, but she was saying, you know, with everything going on with 2020 or now 2021, when this episode comes out, a lot of people have been very distressed and in a lost place and, you know, all these different things that in behavior analysis, we would call establishing operations. And it seems like this would be a prime time for people to join a cult or search for meaning or happiness. They're lost. Um looking for some sense of community, lack of activity, social interaction. Would you agree with this? Oh, absolutely. I think people are also the, the social isolation, people being cut off, not having a support group, being at home, being isolated, being online, looking for solace online and colliding into one of these groups. And then also the groups themselves using the current crisis, the pandemic, uh, problems that we're having socially, economically, uh, and 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 physically as being uh, a leverage point to prove that the world itself is 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 uh, kind of uh, uh, you know granulating and breaking down and that this group has the, has the answers to put things back together or that they they are they have foreseen this time of troubles. And uh, this is all per their prophecies or predictions. So there are different groups that are using the current situation to feed into their recruitment and to beef up their narrative. Wow, yeah, I mean, because it, it makes sense. It's a great time to go recruit now, or you know, you're like, we told you the world was gonna end. Do you not see it? You know, like there's some proof that you could, people are scared, vulnerable right now. I mean, I think even people who are typically pretty strong and solid in their foundation. Um, that being said, I want to go to the brainwashing part. Are in order to, I mean, because some cults, right, are doing, okay, taking your money, which also is not good. But there's crazy things that people have done when they're in cults, whether it's a mass suicide, whether it's prostituting for Jesus or what, the, what do they call it? Right, isn't that it? The cooking, uh, children, children, children of children of God call the women that go out hook, hookers for Christ. And originally, it was supposed to be fishing, flirty fishing, which was a means of recruitment using sex. 
And then eventually Moses David Berg, the founder, said you might as well get paid. And it became a source of income for the group. Yes. Okay. So that's crazy. Nexium, people getting uh, the the branding on them of Nexium written on them. I mean, you probably could tell us actually, and I actually want to ask you some more crazy things you've seen. But I want to know, they're not, and I'm assuming because I'm even thinking with behavior analysis, comparing what we do, and we're not having anyone do anything harmful like that. Like we'll be working on meaningful outcomes for kids such as like, hey, I think it'd be great if you go to the toilet yourself, right? But on day one, we're not going to go in there and be like, hey, go to the bathroom. Hey there, talk. I need you to communicate, right? Like you're going to, they're, they're not going to be doing that on day one, I'm assuming. How are they, these cult leaders or these cults, how have they set up their program to get these people in the door and all the way to doing these crazy things? Well, first of all, uh, Liad, it's a bait and switch con. So it's very deceptive. What they say they're about, what they say they're going to give you is really not what their plan is. It's not where they see you going. It's not what's behind the door. So initially people are lied to and deceived. And then they're brought in, in, I would call it baby steps, typically a spoon feeding process of indoctrination where it's not too much too soon so that they can bring you in slowly and you don't feel it. You don't feel the, the, the movement that they're creating in your life and, and how they're pulling you in. And also what we're talking about is increasing social isolation, control of information, or what Lifton, a psychiatrist who wrote the book Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, called milieu control or control of the environment. And what you see in groups is the more extreme the group, the more extreme it, they will control the environment because their demands are more extreme. Therefore, they must filter out all, all alternate ideas, uh, an outside frame of reference, accurate feedback that you might get that might dissuade you from going in the direction that they're pulling you. So what happens to people is they, they become very involved in the group. Uh, the group takes up more and more of their time. Uh, they find themselves uh, spending less time with old friends, family, becoming more isolated. And in that way, the group has you in a kind of bubble, an echo chamber, where you cannot think outside of the box, at least not that easily. But they draw you in slowly because they don't want to shock you. They don't want you to suddenly say, well, what are you doing? Where are you taking me? They want you to be calm and the people around you are calm and they're pulling you in slowly. And then once they can control information and the environment, they start to gaslight you. They start to do what, what is technically called mystical manipulation or planned spontaneity. You think things are happen happening to you spontaneously, but in, but in reality, it is scripted by the group and it is not spontaneous. It's something that they have planned out as a means of pulling you in and gaining your more, your deeper devotion uh, and, and you to submit to them more and more. So I'm, I'm actually looking in your book right now, by the way. When I got this, I sat over Shabbat and I read through the majority of it. 
because I could just eat through this kind of stuff, which is very interesting because I have the most ADHD ever and I have to be very interested to read. So congratulations to you that I was able to focus. Um, but I, so when I was reading in this book and it was just, I was looking at all the parallels between behavior analysis and what we do. So we always say like, look, we don't change the behavior, we change the environment. So if we want a child to work on requesting water, we're probably not gonna give them a full glass of water before. We might give them some goldfish, right? Cause it will increase the likelihood that they, that's the snack by the way. I don't know if you follow kids snacks also. Well, no, I, I, I've eaten goldfish. They're okay. Very, okay. They're, they're okay. okay, good. Just checking in. So maybe give that because it would increase the likelihood that they're going to ask for water or, hey, why don't we give them a glass of water before if we want them to practice using the restroom, right? So in this book, it what I found really fascinating is you talk about the manipulation a lot. And so a, a lot of people get a bad idea about our science too, because we talk about manipulating the environment. Now, manipulating doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. It could also be the reason that you go to the gym in the morning because you've left your clothes out the night before, right? You're manipulating the environment. But here, I love what you said. And it, it, we talk about this as our unconditioned motivating operations. Sorry, I'm throwing these words in, by the way, Rick, for anyone studying for the test. Um, not to sound like a overly um, vocab asshole. So here we go. It says, the cult process of manipulation doesn't require overt physical coercion, which is very interesting. You're not making them do it. But instead, it part rely on sleep deprivation. We know that's an unconditioned reinforcer, right? People need that. Dietary controls. If you are deprived of food, you will do crazy things. Intimidation. Um, implied threats or inducement of unreasonable fears. Um, and so, and it talks more about sociologist Benjamin Zablocki. Is that how you say it? Yes. Cult movements really rarely retain their members by the use of physical force or constraint. So I think this is so interesting because we talk about this a lot too, about the power of deprivation and satiation. Like you either had so much of something that you don't want it anymore, or if you're deprived, people will do crazy things. And so I, I just thought this was so interesting that you talk about this. This is very related to what we do. And then you spoke about something else in here. It's talking about here about verbal prodding of the how to get someone encouraged from the authority figure to keep going with something. And I thought this was really interesting. So let's say you get someone in the cult initially. And you know, when I think back to when I lived in DC, I lived by the huge Scientology building. And I remember outside, they're like free personality test, right? And I'm like, oh, cool. I'll definitely do a personality test. Now, I'm an Orthodox Jew. I don't really see myself changing in anything along those lines and my foundations. But I also went with someone who was like, this is really cool, who didn't really have a religion or a belief. And so we went in. We got this free personality test. We got all this time spent with us. Like, oh, they really care. And then the lines that I saw here are exactly what they would do. They'd be like, please continue. Or this experiment requires that you continue. It's absolutely essential that you continue so we can help you reach those levels of happiness. Or um, I didn't hear this, but it says you have no other choice. You must go on. And I guess I didn't get that far in. I was only at the beginning. Um, so they're still trying to get you in. But I found this absolutely fascinating 
that this really is what is done. And I, I like, I mean, I'm saying it was even done to someone like me who was so at the base level of just getting a personality test, quote unquote. Well, you know, Scientology, and I've testified as an expert in court regarding Scientology. Uh, Scientology is very, very detailed. They have very detailed training exercises, very detailed uh, counseling. They call it spiritual counseling or auditing. And when you go through their course curriculum, uh, they take copious notes of all your disclosures and auditing, which goes into your pre-clear folder or your PC file. And uh, they, there's a, a, a case, you know, supervisor, there's a auditor, there are all these layers of control, and they know exactly what they're doing. And the people who are uh, the, the, the student or the initiate who's going through it, they have, they have no clue. For example, they won't find out until they reach operating Thetan level three, which could take them many years. That Scientology is based on a science fiction story uh, written by L. Ron Hubbard about alien beings from outer space coming to Earth and that their spiritual residue is what affects us and what Scientology needs to audit and deal with. It is the root cause of our negative reactive mind are these body thetans that cling to us that were once alien beings from another planet. Scientology doesn't tell you that in the beginning, because if they did, you'd go, this is just junk. You know, what is this science fiction? It's not reality. Uh, instead, they say, hey, free personality test. Come in. We're going to do a communications course. It'll help you to uh, communicate better with people. Or we have study technology, which can help you to uh, absorb information better. Or we have Narconon, which is our drug rehabilitation program that can unhook you from uh, damaging substances like alcohol or cocaine addiction or whatever. So they have all these different ways of reeling you in, uh, none of which disclose everything that's behind the door. And you could be in Scientology for years and not understand what it is really about. And they disclose it in layers. And as they're pulling you in, they're getting you to open up and confess everything about yourself. And they know all of your secrets, all of your intimate details, and they can push your buttons and leverage you as they see fit. But you don't realize that. You're just cooperating. You're going through the course curriculum and so on. So that's one example of the way in which people, celebrities, like Tom Cruise, you know, Kirstie Alley, John Travolta, uh, the rock musician Beck, uh, the jazz musician Chikoria, and, and we could go Elizabeth uh, Moss, you know, from Mad Men. Uh, these people were either- What about raised... Kabbalah? What about Kabbalah? Oh, I definitely, I, I, uh, I have talked about Kabbalah at, at length uh, on the YouTube channel for Cult Education Institute. There's an entire video presentation where I talk about the Kabbalah Center. We will put that in the show notes, by the way, everyone. Anything that we talk about during the show will be in the show notes, including oh. the book that I just love that you wrote. Uh, let me let me just say this about the Kabbalah Center. 
that when I talk about the Kabbalah Center, I am specifically talking about the Kabbalah Center that was founded by Philip Berg and Karen Berg, now deceased, and currently run by their son, Michael Berg, and to some extent, his brother, Yehuda Berg. Uh, they uh, come from a Jewish background, but the Kabbalah Center is the only group uh, that I really receive complaints about that studies the Kabbalah. The Kabbalah, for those who don't know, is uh, hundreds of years old and is based on uh, the writings such as the Zohar and it's mi Jewish mysticism. Uh, but it was co-opted, in my opinion, by the Bergs to be marketed and sold and used as a means to enrich them. Uh, the Bergs are very wealthy. Michael Berg just bought a mansion in uh, in New York State for millions of dollars. And my understanding is he paid cash. And uh, the Kabbalah Center is a very wealthy organization. People like uh, Madonna has been involved in the Kabbalah Center, as has uh, Donna Karen, the fashion designer. And, and uh, Roseanne Barr was at one point involved. And even Elizabeth Taylor, before she died, the, the actor Elizabeth Taylor was involved with the Kabbalah Center. Uh, they charge a lot of money uh, for their courses. They sell supposedly spiritual, spiritually energized Kabbalah water, which I think is just a hoax and has been exposed as being basically Canadian spring water. And uh, they, they also uh, will, will tell people that based on their astrological chart that they will do for you, that they can help you, that they can help you to find your way and so forth. But in my opinion, the Kabbalah Center uh, fits the criteria of a destructive cult. And I would warn anyone, uh, Jewish or non-Jewish, because both uh, Jews and non-Jews have become involved in the Kabbalah Center, to beware. Uh, that the Kabbalah Center uh, will make a beeline for your wallet, very likely, and it could end up costing you a lot of money. And I would suggest you should research it very thoroughly before you even go to one meeting. So also something we talk about in behavior is modeling and imitation. That's how a lot of behavior, whether it's group think or anything along those lines of, we model what we see. So and you hear about these celebrities who are doing these different things. So do you think these cults target these celebrities as well? Because we have so many people who look to these celebrities and admire them. Absolutely. I mean, we live in a celebrity-driven culture. We have influencers online in social media who make millions of dollars by plugging whatever, you know, like the Kardashians. And it can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. And in the case of these celebrities who are shilling for a, a group that has been called a destructive cult, they become poster poster boys, poster girls for a destructive cult, and they are used for recruitment. Before Madonna joined the Kabbalah Center, they weren't growing that much. Once she joined and, and other celebrities became involved, everyone wanted to find out what's happening, what's going on at the Kabbalah Center. Uh, the same thing with Scientology. The founder of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, specifically created celebrity centers 
to cater to and 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 uh, showcase celebrities that are in Scientology for the purpose of recruitment and and very much so that other people will say, well, gee, I love Tom Cruise movies, or I, I like Cheers and and the the television series that Kirstie Alley was in, and so I, I like to watch the reruns. And Kirstie Alley's great. I'm gonna I'm gonna join uh, uh, or at least go to a course for communications at Scientology, or I'm gonna go to a brunch at the Celebrity Center, and it segues into getting involved in Scientology, which is exactly how they hope to use celebrities, in my opinion. All right, next pop culture question, and then I have one more after this, and then that's all I have for you. Next question, have you followed up at all, I just saw it in my Us magazine this weekend, about the Hillsong Church? Oh, well, Hillsong Justin is, Bieber's I, church, right, Selena Gomez's. Right. I, I wouldn't call it a destructive cult, but I would say that it is uh, really a, a lot of these churches are led by charismatic leaders who have a great deal of power and authority over the church. Uh, typically, the board that that is on the church uh, corporate structure uh, they really don't seem to have as much authority as these very charismatic pastors who have apparently like life appointments and very little accountability. And uh, so a lot of these churches can be very personality driven and the leader can be uh, uh, kind of like an icon, almost like an object of worship. Uh, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't regard uh, Justin Bieber's church as a cult. But I would say that it's a church organization that's been controversial because of the compensation paid to some of the pastors, how much money they make from the church and how well they live. There was just an expose done about uh, a guy who runs a, a church called Day, Day, Daystar. It's the uh, Daystar Network. And it's a, a charismatic kind of uh, fundamentalist Christian church. And he got some PPP loan money from uh, the pandemic lending that's being done by our government. And, and right about the same time, he paid cash for a corporate jet. And so Inside Edition exposed the fact that he lives a lavish life, lifestyle, that he flies around in this jet, going to Florida, going to golf, whatever. And at the same time, he's borrowing money from the taxpayers of the United States. And uh, after this uh, was exposed, uh, he paid the money back with interest. But my point is that there, these are the kind of churches that I, I frequently hear about where they're personality driven. There's a charismatic leader who has a great deal of authority. There's kind of a royal family at the top with, that surrounds the pastor who is typically the founder. And th this is, uh, you know, a phenomenon that we see a lot of, is particularly with, with what I would call TV preachers or televangelists. Very, very, very interesting. And my last question for you is to see if you know what you've written in your book, I'm gonna test you, on the influence techniques by Robert Cialdini. Robert Cialdini, who, who Cialdini. was- who was a professor at ASU, an, uh, a friend of mine, uh, who I who I often would talk to. 
Uh, Robert Cialdini basically wrote the book Influence, which has become a huge bestseller and a seminal work on what is influence. And Cialdini has the six principles of influence. I don't know if I'll remember them all off the top of my head, but these principles are can be used for good or they can be used for bad. And Cialdini doesn't judge them as good or bad, simply that they exist. For example, the use of authority. Oh my God, you're we, almost verbatim to your book. You are brilliant. You have read your book. This is good. <laughs> Keep yeah, going. Yeah. The, 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 uh, the principles are like authority, uh, uh, reciprocity, the rule of reciprocity. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Authority, I'm more likely to, um, to listen to someone who's appealing to me from a position of authority. Uh, social proof. I look around me to see what is going on so that I know what to do. Like I'm in an airport. So I, where is everybody going to queue up for tickets? So I go there. Um, what's, a what's another one? Um, oh, uh, it starts with an L and N rhymes with Iking. Oh, liking. We are more like we are more likely to agree with people that we like. So, for example, that's why celebrities do endorsements, and that's why uh, Tiger Woods went up the endorsement ladder and then went down because when we liked him, he could sell a, us a lot of products. But after his altercation with his wife and his divorce, people didn't like him as much. He didn't get his. He wasn't as popular for endorsements, and it was all predicated on liking, you know. So, so these six principles that uh, Cialdini writes about in his book Influence are the premise on which all advertising and political ads are based. And in fact, Cialdini worked on the Obama campaign, uh, the last Obama campaign, uh, and he largely now lectures. Uh, not from the standpoint of how cults might use these principles. He kind of shies away from that. And instead, he talks about how corporations and uh, people in marketing can use these principles effectively. Commitment and consistency would be when we make a commitment, we are more likely to to consistently maintain that commitment moving forward. So for example, if you make a commitment to yourself, I'm gonna exercise every day, I'm gonna go on a walk every day. You, you make that commitment, you're more likely to do it every day because you have made the commitment. And also because of you wish to be consistent. So for example, if we promise somebody and we make a promise verbally, and I, we say, I make this commitment to you. I will be there to pick you up every Tuesday to take you to that class. Uh, because I made the commitment, I'm more likely to follow through. And because of my desire to be consistent, I am more likely to follow through. So commitment and consistency are two principles in uh, Cialdini's you know, array of his basic principles or pillars that influence is built on. So interesting. And they also say um, in destructive cults, it can be used um, to make members feel guilty whenever they somehow fall short of their commitment. Or, or they're inconsistent in their commitment. For example, a group may say uh, there's one group that was very prevalent uh, 
up uh, up until I, I think the leader died. His his name uh, was uh, Armstrong, and it was uh, called the Worldwide Church of God. And Herbert Armstrong had what was called the triple tithe. So you would give 10% plus, uh, that 10% would go to Worldwide. Then you'd uh, tithe 10% for the feasts and festivals or for the orphan fund. And every so many years, there would be a triple tithe to this fund. And then you would save 10% for the celebration of the feasts and festivals. So members of Worldwide would consistently uh, be, be expected to give as much as 30% of their gross income to the organization. And there was little, if any, meaningful accountability for those funds. Uh, Herbert Armstrong had a Gulfstream jet. He lived very well until he died. So the people in the group would feel, I have made a commitment. I must be consistent. Every, every so many years, I do the triple tithe. I have to do the 10% for the church, the 10% for the feasts and festivals. If I don't do this, I am inconsistent with my commitment. And so uh, the Worldwide Church of God would use that uh, repeatedly to leverage people and get their money. And last but not least of the six, we have scarcity. Oh, yeah. Well, scarcity would be when you're watching like uh, uh, some, some uh, infomercial on television, on cable, and they tell you, we are down to the last five of these items. We only have five left. And, and once they're gone, it's over. This is absolutely your final chance, your last chance to get this item. And based on this perception of scarcity, you will then call in and they will sell many of these items. Uh, or it, this is absolutely our last going out of business sale. And those who come and buy at this time will get the best deals. But after this week or next month, our going out of business sale will be ended. Or you can have a cult group say to you, we are the only organization that truly understands the Kabbalah. No one understands the Kabbalah like us. So we are presenting to you a scarce commodity, which is the true understanding of the Zohar and the, and the penetration of Jewish mysticism and its, its great power that you cannot share with anyone but us because the Rav Berg, Rabbi Philip Berg, our founder, was a great man and his wife Karen was a great woman and they were able to create these courses and this knowledge, this base that no other Kabbalistic scholar can equal on the face of the earth. So by you coming to the Kabbalah Center, you're sharing in this unique experience and you feel it's scarcity. I can't find this anywhere else. I must go to them. There is no alternative. They are the best. And and if I and I'm I'm blessed, you know, I'm blessed to be able to participate with this group. And do they ever make it like it's hard to get in, like we're selective? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, well, of course, it, it depends on how much money you have. I mean, if you don't have enough money to pay for courses, you could become what they what they call one of the Hevra, 
which are is Hebrew for friends. And this is the, the uh, full-time staff of the Kabbalah Center, uh, which is paid. Now, I think they're paid reasonably well and they have benefits, but in years past, they worked for very little and they were much like what we called the Sea Org members of Scientology, which are all these people uh, frequently that wear kind of blue uniform-like clothing and they sleep, eat, and live and work Scientology every day, seven days a week. I mean, these people are living in, in uh, Scientology housing and they're doing all of the work that it takes to keep these centers functioning. And they, th as far as I know, they do not have a retirement system. They do not uh, have a 401k. They do not have uh, health insurance benefits like you would expect for someone who has dedicated their life to an organization as they have. And so uh, when some of these people leave, they leave with nothing but the clothes on their back. Or, or very little. And Scientology would say, this is your alternative to paying us for the courses. You can become a Sea Org member, you can get courses. And this was an alternative in the Kabbalah Center to paying for their, their courses and their seminars is that you could become a Hevra, which would be the equivalent of a Sea Org member. <laughs> well, uh, I, I had had former Hevra tell me that they felt that they were like slaves. But after a debacle with the Internal Revenue Service, the Kabbalah Center kind of overhauled their their staff. And my understanding is now they are they are fairly well paid. Uh, but uh, I, that has not changed my opinion that in as far as I'm concerned, the Kabbalah Center continues to be a, a destructive cult. Wow. Guys, you need to check out this book because there's so much more that I could ask about in here, but you kind of have to read it to get it. Um, you're also, where can people see you talking about these different things if they want more? Um, I know you're featured in some TV shows. Where can they find you? Well, if you go on Netflix, you'll probably see a docu documentaries that, that I've been in. Or if you're on HBO, I was in The Vow. If you're on uh, the series on Nexium, uh, I had dealt with Nexium for 14 years. Keith Renaria, uh, who I had met and dealt with through lit litigation, he sued me for 14 years. And I, I would help people that were victimized by Keith Renaria. Uh, including Catherine Oxenberg, who is in, in, in The Vow, and her daughter, India Oxenberg, who is in a series, a documentary series on stars called Seduced. But if people really want to dig into the information, I launched a database in 1996, which is huge. It's called the Cult Education Institute. They can find it at culteducation.com. Uh, they can follow me on Twitter. They can also find the Facebook page for the Cult Education Institute and also a, a, a YouTube channel with documentaries about influence techniques and many of the things that we're talking about. And what is your Twitter? Uh, Rick Allen Ross. Okay, Rick Allen Ross, guys, on Twitter. Rick, thank you so much for coming. You've made my dream come true. Um, when you guys are listening, this episode's Hanukkah. 
So this is my Hanukkah present from Rick. Rick, you didn't even know you were giving that to me. So thank you so much. Well, happy Hanukkah. And uh, and this is, uh, maybe this is like Hanukkah guilt. Uh, I don't mean guilt, guilt, <laughs> which is which is uh, the, the, the money that we get on Hanukkah, which a lot of times now is uh, a chocolate uh, gold covered. Uh, yeah, I was gonna candy. say, I never got money. I just got like chocolate coins. I, I I did the same. I like the chocolate. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Um, yeah, it was Rock. awesome. Thank you so much, Rick. I know that I well, didn't have a lot of questions, but I was letting Lee out lead this one because this is her jam, but I learned a lot. So thank you. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you both for having me on. Of course. You guys know where to find us. You could find us on Instagram at Behavior Bitches Podcast, on Facebook at Behavior Bitches Podcast. Go to our website, behaviorbitches.com. And if you want to support us for as low as $2 a month, you could go to patreon.com slash behaviorbitchespodcast. Thank you guys for listening. And as always, love ya. Mean it. Hey guys, it's Liat. And Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who helped us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him and he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. 